to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4 and then 12 through 17. Aaron Cudworth is going to come this morning and she's going to read for us from Colossians. You're going to make me blush. (laughs) Okay, so we're in Colossians 3. (laughs) If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Skip to 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Didn't she do a good job? She was so nervous. Yeah, you should give her applause. All right, now I have preached through this passage before. So I'm going to disappoint some of you because I'm going to really be focusing on an aspect of it that it's going to catch you by surprise. If you want to get the fuller exposition of this passage, you can find it on the website in a series that I did called The Journey. But I want to bring a bit of a different perspective to this to keep in step with the series that we've been doing called The Heart of a Family. And actually, this is the eighth and final week of that series, and there's a reason that we're doing this particular passage today, because this passage focuses, the way that I'm coming at it, is going to focus really on how you get a heart for the family, okay? We focused on the qualities of that heart, which you saw in verses 12 through 15, but we're going to really look at how do you even get that heart. So let me even start with this, okay? So let's really, really get our minds thinking, and I'm going to go deep dive, at least fairly deep, into a word that was found three times in the passage that Aaron just read, and that word is the word heart. What do you know about the biblical heart? Now, let me take you down deep into this, okay? I'll I'll even start it this way. If you look out that window right there, you will see what's called the confluence, where the Lehigh River dumps and joins into the Easton River, okay? So I want you to think of the heart as a confluence. It's a place where three unique, disparate, distinct aspects of soulness, being, life, Join. It's the confluence of all three. Here, here's the three. It's where the mind, the feelings or affections, and the will all join together. It's the very deepest part of your being. It's the very centermost part of your being. And I'll give you three examples. Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
After going to the temple and hearing from an elderly man named Simeon and an elderly prophetess named Anna, she remarked, or the Bible rather says, that Mary pondered in her heart. So we think in our hearts. Okay, the heart's is the confluence of at least the mind. But then the Bible says in another section, a cheerful heart is good medicine. So our emotions, our feelings, our affections are located in the heart. And then the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. So now we've got the mind, we've got the affections, and now we've got the will, the motivation. This is where we make decisions. So the heart is your innermost being. It's the spring deep down within you that gushes forth your words, your actions. It's where your desires are. It's where they originate, where your motivations originate, your demands, your dreams, your expectations. All of these originate in the heart. If you have a fight with your spouse or your children or your parents or your sibling, your coworker, your neighbor, the real battlefield is in your heart. For every single conflict, James 4 says, you're waging war from the desires in your heart. The heart is the factory. It produces what you want. It produces your wants, rather. It produces your demands. The heart is the place where good things become ultimate things, which the Bible calls idols. The heart is ground zero. It's the base. It's the headquarters. It's the hub for all life. It is both the aim of the gospel. God is changing your heart, and it's the target of the enemy. Therefore, we read in Proverbs 4, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Now, if you have an unguarded heart, then you're going to be double-minded. You're going to be hot and cold. You're going to start and stop in your spiritual walk. You're going to be close and far away. It's simply because and horribly because you're not guarding your heart. For your heart determines the course of your life. And it does for me as well. Now, I haven't even gotten into the passage yet. I just needed you to understand what the heart is. And what we're going to do in this passage is see that if we are going to have a heart for the family, the church, that God wants in each of us, then we need to understand three things. How do you even get this new heart, number one? Number two, what's it going to look like when you have it? And number three, how does a new heart even help the family of God? How do you get it? What's it look like? And how does it help? Here we go. Number one. How do you get a new heart? Let's go back to Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Now, this is odd language. It's odd language. And I've shared a lot of times, I've shared several times, if you're not new to this church and you've been here for a while, then you probably have heard this. But I grew up in central New York, a little town called Derrida, New York, and the town limits ended right before you get to my house. So our house that we grew up in was the first house you came to when you leave the town of Derrida. They're all on 
town water. It's not city water. There's only 600 people in this town. They're on town water. We had to drill a well, and my dad built our home, and he drilled this well on this hill where we lived, up on a hill, and down into the water table was sulfur water. It was not drinkable. Now, I know there are people that drink sulfur water, but they blink a lot and twitch, and we didn't want to do that. So we didn't drink sulfur water. So my job growing up, my chore growing up, was to always go down to the Warners, our neighbors at the bottom of the hill, the last house in the town, to drink, to fill up six-gallon coolers with their water from an outdoor tap. And then I would lug them back up the hill. I had to do that all my life. And then when I went to college and the Warners moved, my family found... Five miles away in the town of Quaker Basin, along a gravel road, drilled into the side of a hill was a cast iron pipe, out of which gushes some of the best water that I have ever drank in my life. What we would do is we would take, when I go home, I still do this, I take my mom's 16 to 20 water containers and um, we put them in the back of the car, Take a piece of cheesecloth, because you always put that over the end of the pipe. Matthew's done this with me several times. You put a rubber band to hold that still, that cheesecloth, and then you fill up every one of those containers, and we take them back. That's what my mom and my family still drinks, and when I go up there, that's what I drink. Now, I want you to get that imagery for a moment. The pipe drilled into the side of this hill that taps into the spring the pipe is not the source of the water. I know you know that. It's merely the channel through which the water flows. The spring is the source of the water. The pipe gives you access to it. Now, bring this into the spiritual walk. The source, Christian, of your spiritual life is Christ. Do you know what your pipe is? It's faith. It's faith. Faith is what connects you to that source of life. Do you truly believe in Jesus? That's what faith is. And let me ask you, do you truly believe in Jesus? Have you trusted in him? What's believe mean? It means that you will put the weight of your soul on him. You trust him alone for your salvation and life. And you rest your hopes in what he has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. If you believe, if you have faith, if you rest, if you trust in Christ alone, then by faith, now watch, you have been drilled into Christ. The Bible calls it united with Christ. Get that word with. You are with Christ. It only happens one way, it's through faith. He is in you, you are in him, you are with him, he is with you. These are all the prepositions. This is the language that the Apostle Paul uses in this amazingly incredible book called Colossians. Look at verse 1 again. If then you have been raised with Christ. Now if I were you and you'd like to take notes in your Bible, I would underline with. And then a little later, your, your life is hidden with Christ, it's the second time you see it. And then verse 4, you also, you will also appear with him. Three uses of the word with in these four verses. What does it actually mean? Well, we got to discover this. What does with mean? We use, well, I tell you what, if you go to the, uh, the internet and you just simply Google the meaning of with, 
you're going to find close to a dozen different ways that we use the word with in our English language. This is why it is so hard to learn English. It's crazy. We like to say, hey, do you want fries with your burger? Right? And chocolate goes well with peanut butter. We use the word to accompany two or more things, bringing them together. However, now listen, you could be on a bus with 30, with 30 other people and feel utterly alone. You could be in a marriage with your spouse and feel miles apart. So it's not just proximity. With is more than just proximity with somebody or something else. Here's what it means the way the Apostle Paul uses it. Here's what it means in the Greek. It means to be connected all the way through. It means to be in union. It means to be bound up together so that what affects one affects the other. When you weep, Christ weeps. Did you not know that he collects your tears in the bottle? Do you not know that when you rejoice, he sings over you with love? And when he sings over you with love, that's one of the sources of your joy. Because we are in union with Christ. Now, what does that actually mean? i got to keep going a little bit deeper. Ready? I don't know if you got up this morning like I did. I got up really early this morning. I had a terrible dream. Popped right out of bed. Got up, hit the coffee maker. Denise is so good. She's an awesome wife. She always sets the coffee, usually by a timer. I got up way before the timer, so I just hit it, waited for it to percolate. Got my cup, poured the coffee in it, and I like creamer. I don't like sugar because I am full man. I like creamer, and so I poured the creamer in, and I don't even stir it. So actually, I told you the wrong order. I always put creamer in first, and then I put the coffee in, and I never need to stir it. Why? Because that creamer dissolves. It mixes so in such union, such solidarity. Listen to this, that I, if I pour too much creamer in, I can't take some of that creamer out. Not after it's mixed. Don't you understand the metaphor? This is what it means to be with Christ. Let me give you another one, okay? I grew up with a contracting family. I did a lot of mixing of cement. We took a lot of rock, a lot of stone, a lot of sand, a lot of cement, and a lot of water, and we mixed it often in wheelbarrows, sometimes in the cement mixer. But listen, when you mix cement, it molecularly changes, and it bonds those four together. You will never, if I did it all the time, if you pour too much water in, you've got to add more of the other ones. You can't then take some of the water out. So listen, it's so thoroughly in union that you won't be able to extract any of the four materials from concrete once it's mixed. This is what it means to be with Christ, and Christ is with you. There is a solidarity and utter union. Now, I'm going to take you even a little bit deeper. You've got to get this. There's another thing you want to know about the word with, because Paul writes in the Greek, just like all of them did, and like we do in the English, with tenses. There are Greek tenses. And the tense of this word with, found three times in the first four verses, means something that has already happened in your life, Christian. It's not ongoing. 
This happened in the past, and its effects are going to be seen into the future. It happened in the past. In other words, the very moment that you believed, the very moment that you had faith and trusted and rested your hopes on Christ, you were given in that moment a new life, a new recreated heart. Your old heart that was as rocky as shale, that did not want anything to do with God. He took that heart out of you and he put a new heart in you. He literally, metaphorically, did a spiritual heart transplant. And you became a recreated being. You know what he did? Flip back one page. You might not even have to flip in your Bible. I'm not sure. Chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Now, I'm always reminding you, if you're watching this online, let's have your Bible out. Make sure you're following along, all right? So verse 13. God, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's what we were born in. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom, in Jesus, he's the whom, in Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is what happened the moment you believed. You were brought out of darkness, your eyes were opened, you were given a new heart, you became a recreated being, and you gained new citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. And it's Jesus is the means for that. He's the source for this. Listen, the pipe that connected you to that source was your faith, by the way, which is still even then a gift of God. You see, salvation is all from God. You did not wake up one day with some gigantic propulsion of intestinal fortitude and say, now I will believe in and of my own flesh. No, you did not. Even your faith and my faith is a gift that God has given. Why? So that he could drill us into the person of his son and gushing out of that pipe into your heart comes rivers of life. Power. See, this is the power of the word with. It means so much more than if you just got up Monday morning and started reading Colossians 3, 1 through 4. How often do you stop and really reflect on the power of the word with? I'll even give you one more way to look at it. And you finish the saying for me. You could take the boy out of the country, but what? You can't. It's who he is. Christian, it's who you are. You have Christ in you. He is with you. You are with him. He's given you life. You see, that's the point. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. He says, Paul did, you have put on the new self. That's a past tense. That's a once for done. That's already happened. The moment, the moment of your salvation, you have put on the new self. That's a recreated heart, which is now ongoingly being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, when you believed in Christ your Savior and you submitted to Christ as Lord, your old self was crucified with him and you were raised with Christ, a recreated being with a new self, a new heart, a new person. And it was all foretold over a thousand years before in Ezekiel. 
This is a prophecy, Ezekiel 36. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. That's little s. That means a new affection, a new emotion, a new center of your being. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, supple, that's bendable, that is shapeable by God. And then I will put my spirit, that's capital S, the Holy Spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, this is what salvation Salvation is that by faith that God gives you, he drills you into Christ himself. So out of that pipe becomes rivers of water, rivers of life, rivers of nourishment. And he gives you and I the want to, to do what we ought to. Now, we're going to drill that even deeper, pun intended, in point number two, what the new heart actually looks like. Now, in my, in my office... Uh, if you ever visit my office, you will see, you know, I've got multi-tiered bookshelves, okay? And the way that I organize my books, maybe you shouldn't come into my office. You don't want to see this because my books that I don't like, that I never really read anymore, are at the top that I have to get a ladder out to get to. And all the ones that I really like that are really good theology are at the bottom. Now, don't come into my bookshelf and look because some of your favorites might be on the top and you might get angry at me, Okay. But that's how I do it. So I thought I had at the very tippy top shelf this book called Dress for Success that I had years ago. I think I threw it away. It was a 1977 best-selling book. You can still get it, unfortunately. It was written to be able to tell you that if you want to be successful in life, you've got to dress the part. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but I like wearing hiking boots and work boots and jeans when I preach, okay? So I, I'm not really a dress-to-impress guy. Maybe I should be. I actually tried this last night. I actually wore a suit coat last night. I honestly think it was one of the worst sermons I've ever preached. So I, I've thrown away the theory. I threw away the book. I throw away the theory. But let me tell you this. I do want us, and I do want me, to dress for success in my heart. I want to put on the clothing that Christ says. Now look at our passage. Put on then, this is dressing language. You get up in the morning and you start putting on your layers of clothes. Put on then as God's chosen ones. See, the good news of the gospel. Now this, okay, let me, let me qualify this. If you've not yet listened to really much of any of this message, you're going to be Okay. I mean, I don't like you right now, but you're okay, all right? The pox be upon you. But the best part, the core of it, actually, is right now. If you can understand and master what I'm about to teach you, you're going to get the power of the gospel. Because what I'm about to tell you is this. The good news of the gospel is not simply that God tells us how we can learn to be kind and humble and patient, all of these qualities that you're reading in this passage. No, the good news of the gospel is this. The life of Christ is pouring into you, Christian, by faith, giving you the want to to do what you ought to. The life of Christ is changing you so you don't have to knuckle down. You don't have to clench your teeth. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to find four ways that the Bible says to have a compassionate heart. It becomes natural, supernatural, to the recreated heart. 
The more the life of Christ flows in you, the more it flows out of you. And when it flows out of you, it will look like this. What you're seeing in Colossians 3. You see, there aren't three or four or ten things the Bible says to do, and then you will have these character qualities. That's not the gospel. Listen, that's moralism. And unfortunately, that's the bulk of preaching today. you got to go do this. And so you go to these really, really uh, interesting churches. I'm using the word interesting with invisible air quotes. You go to these churches, and they've got all of these three or four things that you do, and, and you're going to be growing and this and that. I'm telling you, it doesn't work. You will sputter your way to failure. No. It's not what you need to do to have these qualities. It's who you need to be. And who you need to be is one by faith, dwelling with Christ, abiding with Christ, delighting in Christ, walking with Christ. And the more that you walk and abide and dwell and love and, and marvel and ponder Jesus, the more all of a sudden your mind changes and your affections change and your choosing and your motivations and your feelings and your emotions, all of those change and they become like Christ. Why? Because you've discovered the secret of mastering your heart? No. It's because the life of Christ is changing you. It's pouring into your heart and changing you. Now let me prove it to you. Colossians chapter 3. This is the biggest part of the message. Look at verse 4. I want you to see something. Please underline it and ponder this. You've got to dwell on this and meditate on this because I'm not going to take you very deep in it, but it's so important. Paul tells us not only that Christ gives life. Now watch, look what he says. Christ is our life. Those are miles apart. Christ is our life. Two years ago, we had an 80-foot cottonwood tree in our backyard and it was so i mean if you have a cottonwood tree you know they grow several feet a year they're they're just ravenous trees they take over everything and they grow huge and this particular one it actually had a split at the trunk not split like a crack it grew two trees out of the crunk, trunk and both of them were 40-something inches in diameter, massive, 80 foot, both of them, 80 to 85 foot tall. Every single storm, Denise and I would just be praying because one of those trees leaned out over against our house, over our house, and the other one leaned out over our neighbor's house. So every storm, Lord, please let that tree go down in our neighbor. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't say that. <laughs> But every storm, Lord, please don't let that tree go down. Finally, we said, why are we going through this? It's just emotional turmoil, mental anguish. Let's just get it cut down. So we did, March of 2020. If you know anything about cottonwood trees, you know they contain an unbelievable amount of sap and water. Literally, when the tree company was cutting the base of it, it was pouring out like God hooked up a hose to the top of that tree, pouring out while he's cutting it all over him, and it always smells like cat pee. It's one more reason why you should not own a cat. So they cut this tree down. They cut it up, and I said, hey, I burn wood. I'll let it dry. Just put it over to the side of the yard, and they did. And I stacked one log on top of another, waited 14 months. This last Thanksgiving, 
Actually, I waited a year and a half. This last Thanksgiving, I started going out and splitting it up. I have a log splitter. The ones on top were about five to six months from being dry enough to be burning, seasoned. But then I started splitting the ones on the ground. And now it's my turn. Because every time that splitter's wedge went in there, it would just shower me with water. Because cottonwood, all wood, by the way, does this, but especially cottonwood, even when it's dead and cut up, it keeps drawing water from the ground. Now watch. If you're spiritually dry, if you're sputtering and being overcome by sin and double-minded, and sometimes hot for God and then cold for God, Sometimes so excited about going to church, and other times you can't stand it, you can't even get out of bed to do it. Listen, what's going on is that you are not in contact with Jesus. You are drying up. And the only way to get that life-giving water back into your heart, connected into the spring, the source of all life, is by drilling that pipe right back into Christ. Not getting saved again, but getting reconnected again. By faith, delighting, abiding, walking, dwelling with him. So that that moisture, that life, that water starts pouring back, gushing back into your heart and filling you up. So it overflows. And what's it going to look like? Look at verse 12. You're going to have compassionate hearts. And you're going to have kindness and humility and meekness and patience and all the other ones. They're articles of clothing. There's eight of them. These are what Christ looks like perfectly. And guess what? When you got saved and you got your new heart, you became a recreated being. You got a wardrobe in your heart with all eight of these clothing articles in them called the qualities and attributes of Christ. They're all there, but you and I have to put them on. See, this is in a present tense. You got to keep dressing in them. You've got to put them on by faith. Because they're all graces of Christ. You don't buckle down and say, you know what, I'm going to make myself more compassionate. No, you're not. You can't do it. No, Christ must do it. And the way that Jesus does it is by pouring his life into you and renewing you. And the way that he pours his life into you is when you're connected to him by faith. And the eyes of your faith are marveling. They're beholding Jesus. They're amazed at Jesus. And they're dwelling with Jesus and delighting with Jesus. And all of a sudden, the desires in your heart are the desires of Christ being poured in there. And this is the way that we are to be with one another. See, this is how you get a new heart, and this is what a new heart looks like, but there's one more point that we need to settle. How does that new heart really help the family of God called the church? Now, this is the grand narrative. This is the metaverse that actually wove itself through every one of these series, whether you knew them or not. It's always the gospel. It's always the gospel. If you've, been, if you've been to all eight of these sermons, you've heard very deliberately the centrality of the gospel in every one of them. So how does a new heart help the family? Well, let's settle something for a moment. The church is a family, whether you like it or not. And I know plenty of people that don't like it. The church is a family. We are brothers and sisters. And we are with Christ together. 
And all good parents, like the apostle Paul was for this church, he was the patriarch, the apostle patriarch of this church. All good parents have an ideal picture for their family. Parents, you do. You know you've got a way that your family want, you want your family to live. You know you've got that ideal that you want for your children, even if they're older. Well, Paul had one too. And he tells us what they are. There's three aspects to it. Look at the first one. It's the peace of Christ. He wanted them to experience the peace of Christ. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your where? In your hearts. You know, that word rule, this is the only time in the New Testament you'll ever find it. Let the peace of Christ whistle when you go out of bounds. Let the peace of Christ govern your life. Let it be the referee of your life, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, here's how the peace of Christ rules in your heart. Now, I want you to hear this, okay? This is huge. Christian, because you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and you are with him, and he is with you. Well, Jerry Bridges put it this way. Let's picture this being you, okay? And this being Christ, he taught me this at a conference with 3,000 pastors. He said, if you want to understand what it's like to be hidden with Christ, to be in him and him and you, with him and him with you, then here's you, here's Christ, here's what he does. He puts you in there and he folds over you. Now here's the Father. With the wrath and the judgment that is just and right because of our sins. And Christ took the blow. Christ took the punishment. He protected you. It's as if he did all the sins that you committed. Meanwhile, you are treated by the Father as if you committed all the righteous acts that Christ did. Don't you see that's the gospel? That he who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. Do you not know, Christian, that you should not struggle with shame? There's no need for it. There is no condemnation. There is no angry scowl of the Father to you. Yes, when you sin and when I sin, he disciplines us, but not out of wrath. That wrath was extinguished. That wrath was spent against the sun like a tsunami against the walls or the cliffs of the Pacific. Listen, there is nothing left anymore towards you. All that he has for you now is favor and love and kindness and blessings and a fierce determination to make you like his son. That's the theology of the word with. And that's why you can have the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. You are settled with God. He is settled with you. But he goes on, not just the peace of Christ. Paul wants more than just the peace of Christ. He wants the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Look what he says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. That word admonishing has a bit of a sharpness to it. That's exhortational. This is how we ought to be with one another, not just the pastors. No, all of us like this, husbands with their wives, wives with your husbands, parents with your children, children, be careful with your parents, okay? Be careful, but with one another in the church. 
teaching and admonishing. And you know what? You know what? One of the ways that we can do that through or with or how is through music. Do you not know that's why we sing? Do you not know there's teaching that's happening when we're singing? Look what Paul says. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms are songs of doctrine and truths about God's deliverance. Hymns were always centrally about Christ and the gospel. And spiritual songs were spontaneous. They were spirit-motivated. Holy Spirit-caused singing. We should recover that. You know who does it in our church is Mark Jefferson. He is just, he's supernatural with this. He would just break out in song. That's what it means, spiritual songs, is that we sing to one another and we encourage one another. Why? So that the word of Christ can dwell richly in us. But then it's not just the peace of Christ and the word of Christ. There's one more. It's the name of Christ. Look what he says in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does that mean? What's that mean? In the Bible, a name was a portal. A name was an icon. And when you double-clicked on it, so to speak, you got a glimpse to the character and the attributes of the person. Every name of God that he has given in the scriptures, you double-click on that, you get a whole universe of truth about God, a display of his glorious infinite character so do all or do everything word or deed do everything in the name of the lord jesus listen it means this do everything you do with and in and through the life and the power that jesus is pouring into your heart do it all that way don't disconnect don't put the log up on another one. You're going to grow dry. Get your battery terminal back onto the battery post and tighten it up. Get that pipe back firmly into that hillside, right into Christ, because it's only then when the battery terminal is tight, when the log is up on another, when the pipe is in the hillside, then the water, then the power, then the life of Christ flows into your heart. Speak out of that life. Do out of that life. And you will bring such glory and fame to God. But don't try to do it without it. Well, let me sum all that up in 42 seconds. Okay, please don't time me on this. How does a sinner get a new heart? You might be right now with your old heart. You may not be a Christian. Please, I dare not take that for granted. You may not have yet bent the knee to Christ. And if you haven't, then you've got your old heart. You're not a recreated being. You're a heart of stone that's in you. The very center of you has a mind for you and affections for you, and you choose for you. That's what it means to have a heart of stone. You can have a heart of flesh. You can have a new heart. You can become a recreated being, but it's only when you believe. It's only when you trust. It's only when you rest in Christ. And the moment you do, he puts a new heart in you. He puts it so deeply in you that your thoughts begin to change. What you want begins to change. And how you live begins to change. 
Why? Because by faith, you're with him. He's with you. You're in him. He's in you. You're hidden in Christ. And that pipe of faith, out of it flows from the source, Christ, his life. He's putting his life in you. And you begin displaying that to one another. I begin displaying that. And all of a sudden, pouring out of me, pouring out of you toward each other is compassionate hearts, is kindness, is humility, is patience, all of those graces, all of those articles of clothing given to you by Jesus. But you got to put them on. And you got to put them on every day. And you put them on by faith and the power that God supplies. And when he does, everything you say and everything you do begins to emerge out of that life and you shine upon the glory of God. And he becomes famous through you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. And as Pastor Kyle comes up here and the worship team comes back up, Lord, I pray that your blessings would be upon your word, Lord, and drive these things deeply, deeply into our hearts, Father. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, what it means, convince us, persuade us what it means to be with Christ, Lord, we were crucified with him, buried with him, and raised to to new life in him. Lord, we are hidden in Christ. And our Father looks at us the same way that he looks at his Son. Lord, that is such rich teaching. It is such rich truth. Lord, I pray that that would drive the pipe of our faith so deeply into the life of Christ, that pouring into our hearts would be nothing but that power, that life. And Lord, we would live in such a way that would be the power of God displayed through us. You would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.